It's not about waiting for people to come out of college. It's about getting people prepared long before they go to college. And that's about investing in local school systems, local people to help them develop such that they are available for you when you're ready to hire them. I think the more we do on math and the math and science front, the more interest young kids will have in computer science. Welcome to the Founders Focus podcast. For more than 25 years, TechCore has worked to ensure K through 12th grade students in the United States have equal access to technology programs, skills, and resources that enhance early learning and prepare them for college or career. Founders Focus invites you along for the journey as we examine technology and how it impacts the way we work and live. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of TechCore's Founders Focus podcast. My name is Gary Beach. I am Vice Chair and Founder of TechCore. The focus of today's conversation is how must corporate America engage with public education to provide high-quality and diverse computer science learning experiences for each of the nation's 51 million K-12 students with a special focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Joining me to discuss these issues and more is John Thompson, one of the most influential executives in the information technology industry. John spent 28 years as the top executive at IBM and 10 years as CEO of Symantec Corporation. In 2012, he joined the board of directors of Microsoft where he served as chairman and now as lead independent director. He is also the venture partner for Lightspeed Ventures in Silicon Valley. His vision for education is simple and direct. Life's quest is all about learning. John, welcome to TechCore's Founders Focus podcast. Yeah, John, in, in, in previous conversations with, with TechCore students on the Founders Focus podcast, I particularly enjoyed listening to their stories about the early influencers in their lives and how, what was the seminal moment they wanted to work in the information technology industry. Um, I knew you grew up, you were born in Fort Dix and you moved to West Palm Beach and your mom was a Jersey year. guy. <laughs> we know all about you. Um, it, where, where I think your mom was saying young people are expected to be teachers, preachers, doctors, or lawyers. How did you... Uh, get interested in technology. What's your story? Well, my story is a little odd when it comes to, quote, interest in technology, because quite frankly, as I joined IBM, I really had no interest in technology. I was just looking for a job. Right. And the plan, as my mom would say, teachers, preachers, doctors, and lawyers are local business people were the most successful people in the African-American communities back in the 60s and 70s. And so my view was, I'm going to be a lawyer. Well, about 18 months into my IBM job, uh, I went and sat down with my father-in-law, who was a very prominent and successful attorney. And he says, so tell me where you think you'll be a year from now. And I went, oh, maybe making twice as much as I make now, because IBM had an 18-month program for entering the sales organization, if you will. He says, well, okay, let's look forward three years. And so I said, oh, at least 3x what I'm making now. And he says, well, why would you ever leave that job to go to law school, to come back? And in three years, you'll be making about the same amount of money you make now. Huh. And that was the aha moment for me to say, OK, I better double down. And I just got unbelievably fortunate, Gary, along the way, because I had many early mentors 
who were willing to put their efforts behind me. And that started in Tampa, Florida, and it moved to Atlanta, and then it moved to Boston and moved all over. And as you well know, I spent 27 years, nine months, and 13 days working for IBM. <laughs> Not that you're counting. Uh, <laughs> I loved every minute of it. But uh, I knew I wasn't going to be the CEO, and that's why I ended up leaving the company quite frankly. And your mom and dad, looking down on us here today having this podcast, uh, they should be very, very proud of their son, uh, as, as you know. Uh, Business Insider, just a couple of years ago, you uh, listed you on the top 25 list of the most influential African-Americans in the information technology business, not as number 25, but number one. So that, that, that you've done well, John W. Thompson. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think a lot of that, quite frankly, is more attributable to what's happened to me or for me over the last 10 years. Uh, 10 years ago, starting, well, actually 12 years ago, I got a call from Jim Cash, mm -hmm. the former leader of Harvard's School of Business, and he wanted me to consider the Microsoft board. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You may not think of us as a competitor, but we clearly think of you that way. Mm -hmm. Well, sure enough, um, he said, how long are you going to be chair? I said, just one more year. So sure enough, a year later, he called back. And I said, well, I'm going to be here a little bit longer. And he says, how much longer? I said, well, another six to 12 months. Well, six months later, he called back. And I had started to think about, okay, what am I going to do in the next chapter? And I had always intended to be in the venture capital business, but the notion of getting involved here made a lot of sense to me. So, you know, life has been good to me and joining the Microsoft board was clearly something I never imagined. I will be 10 years in come March of this year. And I've gone from being a new director to being a chair to now being the lead independent director again and Sasha is chair. And I'm looking forward to moving on at some point because I happen to believe in board service terms because uh, I just don't think board members ought to stay around forever as many of the largest companies do, quite frankly. John, I wanted to follow up a bit on your, your prior answer on mentors. Now, a lot of the folks that are listening to this podcast are young people, and I, I, I totally agree with you about the importance of mentors. How, how does one go about, if, if a young woman is looking to get into this industry, for instance, TechCore is located in Columbus, Ohio, mm -hmm. and as you know, Pat Gelsinger just recently said, you know, we're going to put a $20 billion plant there in, in Columbus. So uh, how, how, do, how do young people go about finding mentors that could help them further their computer science uh, uh, STEM careers, if you will? Well, one of the things I have long believed in is that mentors are about people who want to engage with you and who you want to engage with. And I can't tell you how many people, candidly, Gary, have asked me to consider being their mentor, but I just don't have that much capacity. So it's as much about the relationship between the two people that creates something that's impactful for both the mentee and the mentor himself or herself. I have done lots of mentoring, if you will, over the years. And one of the roles I really play at Lightspeed is not about finding the next big deal, but helping the young early stage company leaders move on to the next chapter, move on to the next uh, chapter in their career, if you will, and helping them to grow and prosper. And, and that's been a wonderful part of this step in my career. I, I refer to this as chapter four. Uh, 
Chapter one was IBM. Chapter two was Symantec. Chapter three was running a startup for six years, which I never intended. And now chapter four is back where I did intend post-Symantec, which is in the venture capital business, but not in deal flow, but more in mentoring and coaching young leaders and founders. How many chapters, John, you, you and I are? There will be a five. <laughs> <laughs> there will be a fifth. Um, for 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 uh, I guess the, the the youngest group now are the Gen Zs, or even yeah, younger right. than them are uh, Alpha. To go back to Alpha, how many chapters should a young person expect to have in in their career, whether it's in information technology or or in other professions? Well, I think what's more important is not so much how many chapters, but how do you progress and how do you think about progression and career progression and arguably each step along the way within a single large company like IBM was a chapter but I didn't I don't refer to that as a chapter I refer to working for a company as a chapter in my career and oh by the way today the churn rate for younger people is much much higher than it was when I grew up people don't think about joining a company and staying for 30 years they think about joining a company, maybe staying for two or three years before moving on to the next. And that's about um, the challenges of the company and, quite frankly, the sense of growth that they might be able to get by going somewhere else. And if they have a good coach and a good mentor, guess what? He or she might be a part of that process. Good point. Uh, John, thinking about the K-12 system, what, uh, what grade level? Should, you know, if we want to create a nation that's data fluent, so data fluency is equated to in the early 20th century and mid 20th, you know, reading literacy. What, at what age should our nation embrace uh, teaching the fundamentals of computer science to our young people? Should it be K3? Should it be middle school? Uh, I sense, I think high school is a little bit late, but um, what's your take? Well, the earlier, the better. And, and I think there are kids, quite frankly, today who as fourth or fifth graders or fourth or four or five year olds who have an interest in computers because they work with these silly things all day, every day. And so I, I think it's a much younger age now than we ever imagined. And I think the more we do on math and the math and science front the more interest young kids will have in computer science, if you will. I actually read an article a couple of days ago that was looking at the best paying jobs for people leaving college. Well, guess what? The best paying jobs were all tech related. Uh, The worst paying jobs were teaching, preaching, the things that I wanted to do when I was a kid. Thanks, mom. Thanks, dad. (laughs) And so the world truly has changed over the last 72 years, if you will, from where it was when I got here. And so it's it's more important to think about what is that it that I want on this career or life journey? And how do I get help along the way to f- facilitate or facilitate that, if you will? And John, as you mentioned in this, in this podcast, you, know, you had a, a rich career at IBM and Microsoft and Symantec and Lightspeed and others. Um, the, the, the question that I wanted to ask you is why? You you mentioned uh, the best paying jobs. Why are there 335,000 open tech jobs in our country? And you know, what, what role does the industry, what, what has to happen to fill those, those, 
those jobs? Or are we gonna get a point in this post-pandemic era where we're experimenting with all kinds of different work, where boards are going to say, you know what? Uh, uh, as Eric Bendrofson says down at Stanford, it's not exactly clear how humans are going to fare in this upcoming era, the future of work, we call it, where machines and algorithms and all these others are going to possibly uh, steal the thunder from humans. What advice would you uh, or insight do you have as to why we have so many open jobs in tech? Well, the tech industry has grown exponentially over the last 10 or 20 years, quite frankly. And once upon a time, there were two or three big players in this industry. And now there are many, many big players in the industry. And they all need talent. And they all want technical talent and sales talent and finance talent. And therefore, uh, the pursuit has created this huge, huge bubble. Now, I don't think the bubble burst anytime soon. Because the challenge that we now have is the notion of going into the office is silly. Uh, I now have the shortest commute of my 50-year career history. From my house to light speed is all of seven minutes. And I've been there one time since the first week of February of 2020. And so we've all had to learn how to work from home or work remotely. And I think that will be with us for a very, very long time to come. The question, I think, the challenge that we all have to learn how to deal with is how do people learn and grow in this work from home environment? Because so much of my early learning was from sitting next to people who were so much further along in their careers than I was. And therefore, I got the, the benefit of learning from them as we sat there in the office together. That's not the case anymore today. Certainly not now. And as these young people are looking for these jobs, there's, uh, I don't know if you ever met uh, Rick Miller. He was the president of Olin College of Engineering just outside Boston. Yeah. Uh, he's retired now, but he was <clears throat> fond of saying, it's not what you know, it's what you can do with what you know. And That's well what said. advice would you give the young folks listening to this podcast um, when they're interviewing for one of those 335,000 jobs in the future, let's say, what kind of skills are executives like yourself? I mean, you're not working with HR to hire people, but but you've 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 done this for 50 plus years. You know, what are the skills that they should bring to the forefront when they're they're um, applying for a job? Well, I, I think it's. Talent is one thing. That is, what's your background and education experience and what have you? That's very, very important. That's at the core. But I think on top of that is more about your personality and how you can blend in with the team that the team is trying to construct. And having, you know, candidly, an arrogant, obnoxious attitude won't give you the sense or won't give the potential partner the sense that you should be a part of their team. And so I think thinking about how you're going to manage the communications as you go into the interview process is really, really important because at the core, you may have all of the underlying credentials that you need, but you may not have the personality profile that matches what they're looking for. And that's an important step in the early days of your career, I think. Yeah, particularly that. And then developing a mentor, as you were mentioning, mentioning earlier. Well, I had, a, I had an interesting uh, encounter at IBM. So the guy who ran uh, college placement services for FAMU 
said to me, IBM's coming on campus and they're looking for salespeople. And you've been a salesman for two years now. Why don't you do this? And I went, oh, okay, fine. I don't want to work for them, but okay. Well, sure enough, I go for the sales management interview or sales training interview or whatever. And the guy there is looking to buy a stereo system. And I spent the first 15 minutes of that interview trying to convince him that he should not only buy a stereo system from the store I work for, but from me. Well, that was the beginning of my sales career. At <laughs> and quite frankly, it worked pretty well. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you and you and Mills and, and, and Lucy Bainey, I, I, I just ran into, I'm going to have lunch with her hopefully in, in, oh, good. in the future. I haven't seen her in a long um, time. But John, while we have you here, um, what does our industry, what does the tech industry need to do to become more diverse? Now, you've seen the report came out a couple of years ago, the Equal uh, Employment Opportunity Commission. You know, it, it is a, a white Asian male industry. And it, it, it I mean, I, I've been in the industry not as long as you, but almost. And for my time at IDG, when we would do profile studies of our magazines and newspapers, always about 20% of the respondents were women. That's still the number now. And of course, with, with uh, diversity issues, uh, you know, African-Americans underrepresented, women, uh, it, it, why are we not getting it? Well, I, I think larger corporations who have an established footprint do get it, and they are doing more to try to help uh, people of color or quite frankly, women. Uh, I look at the progress candidly that Microsoft's made over the last five or six years. It's impressive. More so, quite frankly, admittedly, on the female side mm -hmm. than on the people of color or African-American side. But right. they're focused. <clears throat> and what they've ended up doing is saying, okay, and this is a conversation that Sacha and I and Brad Smith had many, many years ago, which is we need to get more involved with HBCUs where we can put more investment it's in historically the, black college bingo bingo yep. uh, where they can in fact invest in uh, candidly computer science programs in those institutions that helps to build if you will the broader base of the community that we are so desperately looking for and i know that microsoft's done it i know that google's done it and many of the larger companies in the industry have done that for many years including ibm not only that, many of those larger companies are also running local programs in the towns where they have large community populations. So if you would go to Redmond or Seattle or come here in the Bay Area, Microsoft has a lot of its employees who are working, if you will, in local talent programs around life science, around candidly technology. So it's a it's an interesting thing that I think the larger companies now recognize that they have to make as much of an investment there as they do in training people once they get to the company. Good point. Uh, John, uh, what's the value of a college degree these days? I don't know if you ever ran into Arant Agawal, who's at MIT, uh, Sloan, and I know you have a, a, a degree degree from there. But he, at a conference I was at a number of years ago, held up a piece of parchment that was an MIT degree. And he said, the days when you get this, and it says you took the courses we said you had to take, and you got the grades that we said you must get, and now you're an educated person, congratulations. Uh, those are coming to an end. He was the one who kind of started the MOOCs movement. What, what if, to those who are listening, uh, is the college degree uh, still a vital, relevant uh, 
part of the arsenal, so to speak, when a young person interested in a job in the tech business uh, is applying for one? Well, I mean, it's it, it's not necessary, but it certainly is a point of view that people will have that you have at least advanced beyond the 12th grade in trying to learn or add capacity and capability to, to your footprint. And I think everyone needs to recognize that having a college degree isn't necessary, but it certainly does help you advance your career. I mean, I never had any interest in getting an advanced degree beyond being a lawyer. However, when IBM tapped me and says, gee, we'd like for you to go to MIT Sloan School. I'm like, really? You know, <laughs> by the way, they paid my tuition and paid my salary for the year that I was there. And I got a master's degree in management science. I mean, wow. Uh, but I never would have thought of doing that. And it was their willingness to invest in me that got me to where I am today, quite frankly. Good point. Uh, just one or two other questions, John. I know your schedule is tight. The folks listening, we they hear a lot about this concept, and you've addressed it here today a bit. You know, the future of work. You know, is it going to be in the office? You look at those skyscrapers, whether they're downtown San Francisco or wherever, and and like you said earlier in the conversation, you haven't been in the office. It's only seven minutes away in, in two years. So this future of work concept, is it hybrid? Is it remote? Is it a little bit of both? How do you see this playing out over the next couple of years? Well, I, I am hopeful that the second half of 22 is much, much better than the second half of 20 or 21, quite frankly. And, and it looks as though, or appears as though, the infection rate for COVID is going down. And I think as that, if that continues, uh, that'll have many of us a lot more comfortable about going back into the office. I actually have eight people from the Lightspeed Enterprise team joining me for lunch here today. And oh, by the way, they will be tested when they come into the front door of my house, because that's just the reality of where we are today. We also have guests joining us uh, at another home that we have. And we told them, if you're going to come, you have to be tested. And so I think the, the world is changing and it's going to get to the point where we all have to have confidence that you're not a carrier or I'm not likely to be a receiver if you're in my home no, or said, around times me. Have, times have changed. Yeah. John, just one last question. What, what are some effective ways to infuse African-American and other ethnicities into the tech pipeline that frankly, it's not a skills gap anymore. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a skills chasm. It, we have a shortage of workers of almost 200,000. So how, how can, what can we do uh, to, to, to leverage, you know, the, as I mentioned a moment ago? Well, as I, as I suggested earlier, I think the tech industry needs to do more to build a candidate pipeline. It's not about waiting for people to come out of college. It's about getting people prepared long before they go to college. And that's about investing in local school systems, local people to help them develop such that they are available for you when you're ready to hire them. And I think the more that the larger companies or all of the companies do to help in that regard, the more we'll do to try to reduce the problem of the pipeline, because the pipeline is, as you suggested, just way too big right now. It, it, it's 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 drying Ridiculous. up. John W. Thompson, 
I am glad you did not follow your mother's advice to become a teacher or a preacher. <laughs> you opted to join the information technology industry because uh, I consider you a dear friend and I thank you so much for a great uh, sharing your wisdom with uh, the young people who are listening to this TechCore Founders Focus podcast and, and be well. Great to be with you again, Gary. Nice to see you. Thank you, John, for joining me today on TechCore's Founders Focus podcast. And a special thanks to all those young people who listened to today's podcast. Several months ago, a group called K-12 Mathematics wrote an editorial in the Wall Street Journal where they proclaimed access to quality computer science education must be a launch pad for all K-12 students in our nation. I am confident, John, that your comments today on this podcast will be that launch pad and inspiration point for many young Americans who have listened in today. Thanks again. For the Tech Course Founders Focus podcast, I'm Gary Beach. Thanks for listening.